President Coolidge was quoted as saying, my favorite podcast is in the quarterback by the wood pile. He was also quoted as saying, those of you who said I was weaned on a pickle can suck it. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On this episode of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, we're back up in Indianapolis for the International Association of Jazz Record Collectors, Record Jam, where we sit down with another national treasure, Phil Paspahala. In addition to his love for old-timey jazz and the records that recorded them, Phil is a connoisseur of history, buildings, and beer, of which he tells us all about now. My first question I always ask everybody, what got you into jazz? What was the impetus? The impetus for me was as a young teenager, uh, hearing the um, Firehouse 5 plus 2 band. That group that were, um, they worked as artists, illustrators for Walt Disney and they put together this Dixieland band, but nice, hard-punching Dixieland band playing good tunes, and they wore fire hats and fire suits and, and uh, used to go to parades sitting on uh, in fire engines, but it was all cool. And what came along, of course, the 1950s, it was really down to uh, the traditional jazz revival, including the Firehouse right. 5 plus 2, and rock and roll. The rest of the music world, as we knew it, didn't mean much to me anyway. I wasn't interested in it. It had disappeared. The swing era died and pop was dying and cool jazz always put you to sleep. So that got me interested. And from there, Good Time Jazz was a label, a record label. They made 78s, they made 45s, they made LPs. You found uh, other bands like Pete Daly, Chicago ones. Oh, she looks like Helen Brown. She's the hottest Lou Waters and his Yerba Buena jazz band uh, with the legendary Turk Murphy. Uh, by the way, what the heck's his name? A uh, 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 wonderful actor who made those um, wonderful detective films. Huh. I think you're lucky. Clint Eastwood. Ah, uh, yeah. Clint Eastwood, he, man, well, yeah. Well, he's a jazz fan, yeah. Yeah, he discovered the um, Yerba Buena jazz band who recreated the uh, Oliver Armstrong 1923 Creole band. Oliver said we all took a wrong turn, and uh, Lou Waters said we all took a wrong turn since 1923. Mm -hmm. And Eastwood loved them, followed them around, and enjoyed them for a few years till he got a thing for a Charlie Parker mm -hmm. and Bop, and then went to that and left as we call it, the good stuff. Mm -hmm. The music has to strike you. There has to be something about it that just turns you around. Andy Shum, I call him the messiah, the, the young cornetist, he plays every instrument. And who's the John the Baptist in this scenario? John the Baptist is Dave Bach, his good friend who's three years younger. Dave always said uh, when they were playing somewhere, uh, 
Look at Andy. Listen to him. Listen to Andy. As if here's somebody coming along that's going to change everything, revolutionize everything. It's like John the Baptist, theoretically, in the Bible was foretelling the Messiah coming. And for folks who listening who are not aware, Andy Shum is a young guy who today yeah, he's still is... still about 30, 31. Yeah. Right, and he plays Cornet. as good as Bix as yeah. anybody. He graduated from the University of Illinois with a music degree and majored in Johann Sebastian Bach and the Baroque. JSB being the first jazz man, five uh, strains, five different melodies from the first note. And he must have wowed those people when he went for auditions, trying to sit down at a harpsichord or a pipe organ and show them what he could do. They must have been full of uh, unbelief if that was possible, and yet it was. Baroque was always vigorous, and really, in talking with Andy, he said yes, that was his major at the University of Illinois, and the Baroque is vigorous like old hot jazz. In fact, Andy says that's the only era that should be called jazz. Bop is bop, swing is swing, cool jazz is cool jazz, but it's cool, but it turned into other, it morphed into other things. The only one that has a right to call itself uh, really jazz is the 1920s, hot hot black and white stuff. Earlier you were talking about some of the studios and going to where a lot of these legendary right. bands had recorded. So talk about that, about these old buildings that some don't exist anymore. Right, and I missed uh, a few myself, but uh, I had an interest in old structures because the other thing I love is the history of uh, American brewing, and uh, which is separated into two eras, uh, pre-prohibition and post-prohibition. Uh, national prohibition coming in 1920 shut everything down for 13 years, and then when it started back up again in 33, uh, the underworld, basically headed by the Chicago outfit, as they were affectionately called, uh, controlling in one way or another all of those breweries, eventually losing their control and having the breweries go back to the original owners or just out of business because of various competition changes in technology. They didn't care about that, weren't ready for it. But because of those old brewery structures, those of us to this day who collect, and by the way, I've gone to 45 straight uh, brewery Collectibles of America, Canventions, as they're called, C-A-N-Ventions. It's registered with the uh, whoever does that. Uh, and when, you, or something when you're collecting things, are you actually collecting beer? Or? I'm, I'm collect no, we're collecting the containers and the advertising. Okay. okay, but many of us like to drink beer. I specialize in 1950s six-packs, 50s, 60s six-packs of cans with the colorful advertising and earlier 12-packs, uh, cone tops, flat tops, and then all the, as we used to call them, go-withs, uh, reverse on glass, neon, uh, ball knobs, magnificent um, uh, shellac uh, uh, ball knobs with, with porcelain inserts. Uh, knobs weren't as, as large as they are today if you go into a tap room 
uh, you see all these huge knobs, you could kill a person with those knobs, but they feel advertising needs to be uh, larger and bigger. Well, the beautiful old little ball knobs used to sit right on the bar with the porcelain insert facing the, uh, the customer. So all that stuff, glasses, enameled glasses, coasters, uh, cardboard, tin over cardboard, you name it. So what, what we used to wonder in, in the 70s and 80s, nobody can go out in any city on a trip anymore and find a legitimate commercial brewery left. It was all down to just a few big ones. And we thought, why would anybody go on vacation? So we started to look for the old massive brewery structures from the 19th century. Some people look for churches, some look for baseball parks. I like that too. But we looked for the old breweries and we began to photograph them, exchange photos. And what have we experienced now? We've experienced a rebirth in brewing. Craft brewers, more than twice as many breweries exist than there were in 1920 at the beginning of National Prohibition. Now, who would have ever thought that? Like, who would have ever thought we'd be meeting here in 2016 talking about music so old, played by basically now younger musicians discovering it? So, when we looked at those old buildings, you saw how beautiful they were. Noted what had gone on there, why they were built. So it kind of carried over to when you heard about the recordings of the 1920s and, and they were performed here or there. You saw pictures which showed the inside of these studios, uh, the arrangements they had for acoustic recordings and early electric, and how the musicians had to be placed in here and there and everywhere and all of that. And you began to get a, uh, an interest, a desire to find exactly where these places were. So you could stand inside and sort of sniff the molecules. They're still there. Mm -hmm. The molecules are in the air, sort of, from everybody. So give us some examples of some of the studios that you got to go to and what labels recorded there. Right, the first one was, I was 21 years old, and I went to, uh, with my dog, because I'm a dog guy, I always had a dog <laughs> since I was a kid. And your dog's a jazz fan. Yes, all my dogs have been. And we went to, um, uh, the Jeanette Studios in um, Richmond, Indiana. And the original studio were Bix, Oliver, country singers, and other recordings were made. That studio was still standing. There's a wonderful picture of it in, um, in the pictorial history of jazz, uh, like a sort of a larger uh, coffee table book. It came out in the middle 50s. So when I, it was on a Sunday, uh, I didn't realize at the time they were still in business. They were Coral Records, a division of Brunswick Corporation. And they were making probably 45s, had been making 78s just prior to that. This, this would have been 1957. I believe 78's probably went out around 1955, 6 or 7. So I went there on a Sunday and I saw that warehouse just as it was in the picture. And I took another picture of it. My dog had left the car and had gone into an open side door. This was an old warehouse. It's in the history books. Uh, when the trains went by, they had a watch. Maybe there was too much noise or there would be a rumbling. They kind of stopped the process. 
if you can do that, I guess you just lost the take and had to start all over. And so I took a picture that duplicated that pose and had my 1957 Plymouth there as proof of that. And I did get inside and took pictures of what turned out to be the wall where, where Bix is standing in front of and other, other Red Nichols and all, Oliver because they had black bands come in. Although those crazy rules in those days, black bands couldn't find a place to stay overnight. So they would leave town when the recording was over and head back to Chicago. I hate all that racist business. But anyway, I saw the um, shelves where the oscillating fans had been. There were no more oscillating fans. And, and so I gave that photo eventually to Rick Kennedy, who wrote uh, Hoagie, Bix, and Jelly Roll, or I might have the three names in the wrong order. A wonderful book on the history of recording uh, in Richmond, Indiana at Jeanette. And he used that photo. And, and there you can clearly see the car. People had thought the building had been torn down a number of years earlier. It wasn't, it was still there in 57, but soon was gonna be gone. So that was my first one. Living in the Chicago area, one of the metropolitan giant cities, one of the world-class cities, and a real city in that it's brick and mortar and steel. So it's been there for a hundred and some years, pretty much the way it is, and it has that wonderful elevated, or L with the block L, not E-L, block L, uh, transportation system, where you hear the wheels grind against the tracks, you know, when it's going around the corner. Still in existence, and so much manufacturing had gone on here in, in a variety of industries. And Chicago, for 15 years during the 1920s and early 30s, maybe from 1915, let's say, to 1930, was still the jazz capital of the world, soon to become a Chicago electric blues capital, but the jazz moving to New York. And so, but during that time in the 20s, you hear black and white bands playing Chicago style, Southside black style. Armstrong's here, Bix spends a lot of time here. Uh, the legends uh, beside those two prowling around here, the Austin High Gang. Well, you see they were making records and it all of a sudden because you had a a passion for looking at old buildings on trips. You, you went to neighborhoods to look for these old buildings and by Joe, some were still standing, some weren't. And the fringe of the downtown loop area still had some structures. So you just found them and took pictures where you could. Maybe some fellows took a brick or two. I might have taken a brick or two. I did with breweries. I have a collection. Uh, if you don't mark them right away, by the way, you forget where the bricks are from. Mm -hmm. So we did that and we picked up more recordings. What does it do? It, en it enhances your, your collection because you see where they were made, actually made. We are collectors. Now you were talking earlier about the St. Valentine's Massacre. Yeah, St. Valentine, 1929. St. Yeah. Valentine's Day Massacre, uh, Chicago not caring about their gangster history. Right, well, the second Mayor Daley put the, the kibosh on that. He, he just didn't think that was... Look, Chicago still, to this day, has visitors from all over the world, and I've experienced it on a trip or two to Europe, where they, they know immediately about Chicago. They'll make sounds like a machine gun shooting. Oh, the, oh, the gangsters, Al Capone. Al Capone is as famous a name in the world as Adolf Hitler, <laughs> Babe Ruth, and, and a few others like that, see? So... The thing is, they were all here. Why they were here is another story. The gangsters were not organized. It, it took uh, the FBI and other crime investigators a long time to figure out the mafia and other mobs were getting organized. And it wasn't just um, 
getting into individual industries, but they were now controlling industries. They thought this was just haphazard. So the underworld got into the entertainment industry. Now there's a big tie-in between the alcohol industry and entertainment. By the late 20s, in Chicago and elsewhere, but in Chicago specifically, being so large in an entertainment center, black nightclubs no longer existed for their own people. They catered primarily to the well-off white slumming crowd. And, and they could go into neighborhoods in which they didn't feel safe. I always thought that was so stupid because I still go into every neighborhood. It doesn't matter. I mean, there are good people everywhere. So they would go into these neighborhoods and they were always guaranteed safe harbor in these clubs and the best seats and, and the musicians put on their shows, much like in New York with the Harlem and so forth. So by the late 20s, the clubs were taken over by the underworld. Alcohol, by 1929, the latter part of 1929, was going to become controlled by the underworld because the, the brewing of it and the distribution was considered illegal. So all that was tied in. It seems to me that even though it was illicit, drinking is an allure, especially if it's illegal, a hot music, that uh, was played in um, dives and speakeasies and out-of-the-way places. People enjoyed that music. It was different than what had happened before. And it all just went together. So you have old locations where the music was played. You have old locations where the beer was brewed. And you have old locations where the music was recorded. And it just sort of goes hand in hand as part of the history of that time, never to be repeated. the most famous crime to many people is still the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I'm astounded if nobody knows about it. It's in the history books. I'm sure it's not taught in schools too much. But that's when seven Chicago gangsters from a rival gang, the Northside Gang, were killed by the Al Capone syndicate because they were starting to get too big. And Al was um, taking control of the entire city. Al was a hell of a businessman. He knew how to do this and he had men very loyal to him. Al always had a problem. He was Italian. He was not Sicilian. And he always it rankled him that he couldn't sit in on the highest Sicilian meetings because if you were from the mainland, from Italy, hey, you were okay, you were Italian, but you weren't Sicilian. So he formed his organization. He had Sicilians, Jewish people, Polish people, Irish people. You just knew how to make money or wanted to make money with him and be loyal you could be any nationality. So in 1929, February 14th, St. Valentine's Day, with two trucks, not one, two trucks uh, dolled up to look like police cars. One was a used uh, Peerless and the other a Cadillac. were made to look like two police cars and they went to a rival a Northside gangster, Bugsy Moran's warehouse. And Moran was expecting a shipment of hooch from uh, Canada to come probably from Detroit. And that may have been a ruse, too. Some of this is still not fully uh, determined. And, of course, that was probably a trap, and that's why uh, Moran's men were there on a Saturday to receive the shipment. And the truck comes in through the alley, which is still there. Building itself, the Chicago uh, was torn down in the 1960s. One of the cars parked in the alley, the Peerless, with some hoods in it, 
followed the truck with this hooch in it, with whiskey or whatever, bourbon or who knows gin, that, that had been uh, really pl a plant, a plant by the underworld, followed the truck in when they opened the, the big door in the back to the alley. And meanwhile, the other uh, Cadillac parked in the front on Clark Street and waited. In all the movies about this, and there are plenty of movies on Al Capone and TV programs, there were a couple of Thompson submachine guns involved because the army had turned down the Thompsons and Chicago gangsters found them. Those were actually 45 caliber bullets. Uh, when I did a recreation of this, I got a jar of them with the bullet and the casing together from a collector of live ammunition, <laughs> those guys. That's five caliber less only than a uh, machine gun bullet. That's how big those things were. So two Thompson submachine guns, uh, rejected by the army yet at this point, and a couple of uh, people dressed as either policemen or plainclothes officers uh, with shotguns, went in from the backside, Moran, henchmen, were not Moran himself and two other henchmen, but seven were, were basically in there to, to await the shipment. And they thought this was just another a raid by the police, because these there were nuisance raids, there always were. Mm -hmm. Usually, people were warned because the police were on the take, just like taverns. They would get the notice, hey, you're going to be raided, you see. And, and then you went through the baloney of hiding the, the whiskey and the beer and everything on your premises. So the officer or, or the, uh, the agent uh, from the, uh, not from the FBI in those days, would be, I think, the Treasury Department, would, would come in, look around and, and say you're clean and leave and sign a piece of paper and you'd be back open again in a few hours. So they thought, that's what's going on, because they asked the, the hoodlums to line up uh, facing the wall, put your hands up, this is a raid, blah, 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 and they think we'll go through this again, see? And they came in behind that truck. So before the door shut down behind the truck, they were inside. Now, they did not come in through the front door. One gangster wormed his way through the cars, through the little office in the front, opened the front door, and let the guys from the made-up police car in the front in. In that group were two Thompson shooters. The police did not have Thompson, so they did not come in through the back where, where somebody could say, hey, wait, who are these guys? Mm -hmm. Hey, they got machine guns, you know, and they reach for the Roscoes. No, so they lined these guys up and in 13 seconds fired off 750 or 800 bullets from the two Thompsons and anybody twitching got the uh, shotguns. Uh, some people heard the shots outside. Earl Hines, at the same time, a block and a half away, was using the, uh, the Webster Hotel, first floor, uh, northeast corner, to make recordings, four recordings for his first orchestra, 1929, good, hot, uh, Southside Chicago stuff. He happened to uh, go out in the morning during rehearsal. He needed something from some supplies from a music store nearby. And he recalls in his autobiography that um, there was a commotion across the street on Clark Street and people were milling around, the police cars were coming in, and he didn't know what it was. And he found out later, uh, in the they recorded in the afternoon. The largest slaughter of people, let's say, battling with the law up to that time. One fellow survived, one of the two bodyguards of uh, Bugs Moran, and he survived, but he wouldn't talk in, in the hospital. Well, anyway, I, I did a recreation of that with broom handles, because you can go in the lot, actually where the wall had been standing on the north side when the building was there, and I had to get permission from the Chicago Housing Department because there's a nice um, small high-rise, uh, I don't know if it's assisted living or public housing, I'm not sure. And so we recreated that. The, the gal who ran the uh, junk or antique shop 
her father is the one who had collected these shells and let me use them and she happened to have four chairs that were similar, if not identical, to the chairs in the famous photos of the massacre. Anybody looking in the history books for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre mm -hmm. will see these guys bloodied, lying on the floor at all angles, chairs upturned, bodies half on the chairs, out of the chairs. And so we did all of that. Say, listen here, you know, I've been looking around and uh, lot of insight. I've been wondering where you, where you is tonight, baby. Now, you said people used to say that the sounds of the bullets were heard on the recordings. Well, it was said that it's possible because of the carnage, the 750 bullets, that the recording devices might have picked up that sound a block and a half away. Now, they may have if there was no uh, concrete or brick in the way, but you're going down the block and around the corner. Mm -hmm. And I, I was told, uh, checking it out through a fellow who has some position in um, science of some sort, he told me about the laws of exponentiality, where as it spreads out further away from the sound point really rapidly, you're not going to get sound very far. And especially mm -hmm. with the recording techniques of those days, you don't have the delicacy of today. Mm -hmm. And so there would have been nothing. What tracks did they record that day? Do you remember? They recorded four. Have you ever felt that way? The Chicago Breakdown and two others. And Earl Hines, it's his first big orchestra. He's playing on the south side at a well-known club that had been taken over by the Chicago underworld, shell of which is still standing, in which we were lucky one time to get inside of. And, and so anyway, he makes these recordings, and when you recreate this, we used a, a tavern nearby who had a big painting of that St. Valentine's Day Massacre in their sort of their uh, back room, and we were allowed to play records like we do here and give a preliminary speech about this and then do the reenactment. Earl Hines recorded, we know now from discovery of um, Victor recording ledgers that the recordings took place in the afternoon, but Earl was rehearsing in the morning. Mm, right. So that set that all to, to rest. But the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is still one of the uh, most well-known dates in the history of America. And they continued to use that hotel. Uh, other great orchestras of the 20s and early 30s recorded there. And, and the room is still there. Don't use it for anything. And you go in the lobby, get a lot of um, security. And uh, Middle Easterners own the building, and they're not interested in any of this. They're not jazz fans. Huh? Not interested. Yeah. But okay. we keep trying. You also mentioned you went to the studios where Black Patty. That's the most mysterious. The Black Patty lasted six months. People pay two, three thousand dollars for for a label, even if the music on it isn't very good, or maybe it's some some spiritual thing which has no value to collectors. They so recorded they preachers music. as well. Preachers, right? yeah. But there are some good hot jazz, and just to have that label, and so it's on the north side of Chicago, located in a um, changing neighborhood where I've done three, maybe four walking tours of uh, peculiar taverns, eateries, and uh, half-assed architectural walking tours, we call it. And some of our musicians come with us, mm -hmm. and there's still a lot of uh, uh, taverns, now a couple of uh, craft breweries starting up, and that neighborhood is changing. The building's still there. It used to be an antique shop. Years ago, it was a radio station, which figures it had gone from a recording studio for Black Patty 
which was really kind of a division of Paramount, a fable recording operation in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Chair Company decided to make records to go along with their phonographs and cabinets and things. In fact, they've gone into a restoration period and put uh, well-known performers for Paramount in the sidewalk up there in Grafton, just like they do in the Hollywood Walk of Fame and, mm-hmm. and all. Uh, but, but the building itself is gone. Like most of these cases, there were wooden structures all torn down. Now they're trying to recreate something that's gone. But they were a division, and for black recordings, they also used Chicago. Uh, South Wabash had had recording studios, and so Mayo Williams was the liaison between the Lily White uh, Wisconsin Chair Company and the performers from the south side of Chicago. And these people were brought up there, and they were given quarters somewhere. I don't know if they were able to get in the local uh, fine hotel. People might have wondered who they were because they were, they were just not used to interracial activity at that time. But sometimes they'd put them on a train and they'd go home when they were done with recordings. Mm-hmm. But the address appears in one of the 78 quarterly magazines that were published years ago. And in fact, there was 10 years at least between issues one time. The publisher was that late in getting the next issue out. So, and now he doesn't publish them anymore. But there was an ad probably from the 1920s in one of the African-American newspapers that advertised uh, the coming of Black Patty and what records were available, and they had printed there the address. Bam! It's right there. Mm -hmm. And when you find out it turned into a radio station, it piques your interest. I've been able to get in on the first floor, believe that the second floor housed the recording studio and the radio station, and with a fellow leaning out of the window, he wouldn't let me in, but he says there's a thick-walled must have been a first storage vault up here. Can I please come up and look why you didn't do it? And then they, the building, I think, was probably condemned for, for people living in it, and, and he, he had moved out. But I'm sure that was the recording studio. And it's right near a sweet old bar that's been restored to look like it was in the 1930s. There's it's, some spirit there. Oh. There's some spirit there, and we're hoping it never gets torn down. When you look at the building from the side, or the back, from the alley, you can see clearly the manufacturing elements in that building. That's really what they did. They recorded there and they put those black patties together there. I don't know to what extent. They didn't send the stuff up to Grafton. In that period, they still hadn't built the new phonograph building up in Grafton. So they could do all that in Chicago. That's what they were used to. Chicago was putting out records from Victor, records from Brunswick, records from OK, and, and they probably made the masters made the stampers from them, and pressed them there. That's all to be determined yet, but they were at least made there. seems to want to act on this. They will, I suppose, after I'm dead, because, you know, things take a long time. They were also recorded on Wabash Avenue in a building that's now part of Columbia College. It used to be the Brunswick headquarters, Brunswick Corporation, who made records and then moved to the world's largest building, the Furniture Mart, at 666 North um, Plymouth Court, I think, uh, between the Outer Drive and fabled Michigan Avenue, and uh, by 1929-30 they had moved there from South Wabash, but the studio where they recorded is still there because you have those thick walls, recessed windows up on the sixth floor, and that's where the studio was. One day I went in there and they uh, let me go in with my bus tour, and it's now offices, 
And so we'd, of course, go to the tavern on the corner, and you could look right up at it. And there was a Fable Blues joint then. I don't even know if they're still in business. Because years go by, a few years ago. Another one right across the street where King Oliver recorded with Jelly Roll Morton. Record today worth, I don't know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars 15000 Cat Blues is one side for autograph. <laughs> Orlando Marsh fooling around with sound 1925 before Western Electric came out with sound. And, well, they came out 1925, so he's fooling around 1924. Autograph records, very hard to find. And they were up on the seventh floor above the elevator tracks, the L tracks. And if the windows were open, no air conditioning in those days. <clears throat> in summer, those trains were rumbling by. They just shut down the uh, operation and recorded in between trains. They let us go up there. DePaul University owns that property. And you can actually go and, and look out uh, the windows where the studio would have been. And the building's still there and at least used. But they're not aware of the history of it either. pursuit of records. To what length have you gone to get some of these? Yes, look, the young musicians today and young collectors, and they're not the same, many of us are not musicians. I tried playing a cornet off and on for 20 years uh, for my own amusement, got the correct fingering for two and a half octaves from a, a dance band musician in Brooklyn, got a conquest horn for 50 bucks from a fellow who thought we were going to have an atom bomb exploding over the United States, and he moved his whole family to Australia. <laughs> Nothing ever happened. But it takes a lot of talent, it takes a lot of time and dedication, and it's not easy to play a horn. You have to do it every day or you're dead meat. But I had a good time. I found out who was a good horn player on recordings because I played along with recordings, found out many musicians did that. But the thing is, I had that kind of a background. Today, young people are looking in crazy places, strange places, also going to visit Joe Buzzard and, and finding he, you know, he's going to fall over someday. So I'm sure uh, some of these guys want to wait at the door and be the pallbearers like yeah. they do with my collection. But anyway, it all started, Joe talked about how he did it 50, 60 years ago. Sure, in 19, let's say when I was about 19 years old, maybe 1955, I started looking around, scrounging around, finding records. Wausau, Wisconsin, where I'd been born across the street, there was a drummer who had records, he died, and my aunt called me and said, hey, Harold Jones died, that he always had records. Why don't you come up here and look at them? Gee, in there are some good hot items from the 20s. I just took them from, I don't know if it was his brother or his sister, they said, just take, the, take these. Harold collected them. Then you hear of, of a collection, uh, we had a little club that met once a month, must have met for 30 years to play records, and heard of a, of a fellow who, before World War II, would actually order records through the mail from various labels in the late 20s, early 30s, and then he stopped, he went in the military, came out, his mind was affected, and he didn't care anymore. And he had 350 records on their original mailing sleeves. <laughs> My goodness, I mean, all the hot stuff, Armstrong's hot fives and sevens, Bix and Trumbauer on Minto case. And so we bought them, uh, I don't think they were more than a dollar a piece. Three of us, four of us went there and were happy as, as can be. And we held like an NFL draft in my jazz room. We drew straws and, 
and we didn't get in each other's way. It seems like mm -hmm. we had interests that allowed all of us. So we got ourselves 80, 90 records apiece. That sort of like catapults you into another category. And then you just keep looking. If you're traveling, you stop in a junk shop. Library sales used to be good for this stuff, or garage sales. And that's what these guys, the young guys, are doing now today. They're beating the bushes for this stuff, and it's still there. Out of all, I know this is one of those impossible questions, but out of all the records that you own, like if you had to be forced to go to the proverbial oh, desert yeah. island, you know, what one or two or three would you take? Yeah, I haven't thought about that lately. Um, uh, you know, there are some, I have to say, I, I never thought of my collection as being a very good collection, but apparently it is Jimmy Prohaska, who must have 100,000 records, can't all be good ones. But he told me a year or two ago, he said, Phil, you know who has a good record collection? Because he, he handles my two-day record sales at the Tribute to Bix Fest. He said, you know who has a good collection? I said, who? He said, you. Uh, what? I really was flattered by that. He said, these people, you play a record and you think they all have it. They don't have it. Nobody's going to say I don't have it, or some might. Many collectors, once they get something, they don't look at it in a way that it's so rare anymore because they got it, you right. see. And then they go to the next thing. Collecting is like a disease, and it's a problem like alcohol, narcotics, anything else. You get it, you want more, and you put it on the shelf, and then you go and look for another one. So uh, I began to look at some of these records differently. For example, Prohaska told me one time, he said, Do you know that record, it had, uh, I can't think of the uh, banjo player's name, it's a um, Red OK Made in New York, Buddy Christian banjo player, Buddy Christian band. He said, do you know how rare that is? Well, I don't know, I've never seen another one. But you know how rare that is? A black Ike Rogers, a legendary uh, black trombone player made a recording in Chicago. It's only Ike Rogers and maybe maybe one other rhythm musician. Everybody, when I play it, they just go crazy. They mm. reach for their pockets, like, <laughs> like, how much do you want for it? How much? And how did you it? find that one? I don't remember. Oh. Uh, I could have paid a grand for it on an auction list 20 or 30 years ago. A grand today would be five grand. Mm. See? So, so I, you've paid that much for a record? Yes, because if you're a real collector and I had money, I had a good job in those days. I had the tribute to Bixfest, but I was still working it originally, and so I had money to cover all of this stuff. Mm. And sure, you spend your money on it. Dave Bach, young Dave Bach, he spends a good portion of his money and he makes good money uh, repairing uh, brass instruments. He's plowing it back into his record collection. He is so knowledgeable that he's establishing a good inventory of, of stuff. Well, if you're going to collect, don't collect junk. Mm -hmm. well, what is good stuff? Well, See, it, yeah. it depends on whose, whose Swinger, ears are on yeah, your head. But, but we know a certain period and a certain type of music, mm -hmm. blues, jazz, it's the good stuff, as Joe said in that film. You just accumulate that and you have a voracious appetite. Mm -hmm. I had to give that up because you can't keep doing that. I had a family to raise, four children, and my wife, and, and a house. But for a time, I could handle that, and uh, that's what you do. Some people would say, why would you spend your money doing something like that? Well, look the money people waste gambling. Vegas or on riverboats, yeah. or they, they take vac vacations and stay in the most expensive places or have to eat in the most expensive restaurants, or they wear the most expensive clothes, a collector will go without food and, and wear rags. That's how we are, mm -hmm. because they have their, their eye on that 78. Now, yeah. <laughs>
recording that you think like man this guy whoever it was was completely ahead of their time or this was on another wavelength certainly and it's it's really rewarding to find like uh, young musicians and geniuses like Dave Bach and Andy Shum who agree with this and that would be certain recordings by Leon Bick Spiderbeck and that's why I dedicate my festival to his name although it counts everybody who made hot stuff when you hear a Bick's record you're changed Mm -hmm. it's Unreal. One I've always liked. The first record I ever heard was Royal Garden Blues by Bix, stuff the musicians playing the good stuff throughout the ages really have not been rewarded for it it sometimes comes out later some of the bix recordings it doesn't matter if they're acoustic or or not but the one maybe his best solo of all time hoagie carmichael used it as a as a basis for stardust a theme in stardust still probably the biggest selling record of all time beside white christmas singing the blues there are two solos Frankie Trumbauer first and then Bix. Frankie's is really good and they're very similar, but Bix's is electric, just electric, to the point where a wonderful female singer, Marion Harris, records it and she sings it in Bix's solo melody. And if they send 70 detectives after me, all they're gonna hear is bad old news, cause they won't give a hoot after they've heard the reason why I was compelled for the shoes. Oh me, oh my, your mama's got those can't refuse, shooting blues. Which has startled everybody when they heard that and it wasn't known for years to exist. So it had an effect on people, and that's really unworldly. Last night, I don't know if you were, you were there for a while, weren't yeah. you? I don't know when they played a Bix recording, and Andy, who can go into the Bix mode just like that, as he can go into Johnny Dodd's other modes, he'll play Armstrong, Oliver, he plays anything. And he just sat there, back there, and he was shaking. Oh, God. He says, I'm still learning from that record. Yeah, still learning from it. There are things I haven't heard in there. There's got to be something to that.
know the big names, at least people listening to this probably know. What's uh, maybe a more obscure jazz musician that you like to champion? There are a number of them who don't get uh, much credit. And I like to um, deal in Chicago because Chicago was the capital of jazz with so many musicians playing here, uh, many of whom did not go on to great heights. Frankie Teschmacher, a legendary uh, clarinet player who died when he was 26 years old in a car accident on the north side of Chicago, member of the Austin High Game. Played in a bittersweet tone years after, including Benny Goodman. You hear Benny in the 1920s, he can play that bittersweet squawking clarinet just like Teschmacher. They come from the same school. But Teschmacher is all but forgotten. When you hear him, you just you wake up, superheated uh, Chicago style. I like to champion him. the best uh, baritone sax player of all time. Recordings with Don Murray, where he just grinds up the scale. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows who Don Murray is. Mm -hmm. he, he dies in 1929 with the Ted Lewis Orchestra. He slipped and fell half, half in the bag, uh, hit, the, hit the running board of, of the car he was driving and died. He's buried in Chicago, forgotten. <laughs> on Don Murray for people because they just didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. And they're black musicians, my God, they never they, they never got the credit they deserved. Johnny Dodds, the finest clarinetist of all time in our mind. doesn't get the credit that Louis Armstrong gets as a cornet player and actually Louis revolutionized jazz. So did Johnny Dodds. So did Bix. They're all happening and other than Louis. Andy loves to do Johnny Dodds. I can't, I couldn't believe it when he said, Phil, I would put down my horn, my cornet, if I could play cornet like Johnny Dodds. I'm thinking, geez, Andy's white, Johnny was black, he had it naturally from New Orleans horn. Come on and stomp, 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 Dodds recorded. So two weeks later, I go into the honky-tonk to hear the Fat Babies, and there's Andy on stage, not playing cornet, but he's playing, sounding for all the world like Johnny Dodds. He had mastered it in two mm. weeks, but he still says, you know, I can't do this or that, that Dodds says, but it's so good, it's so good, and Dodds play just blocks away from that. <laughs> The 
fat babies. I, I wanted to get into at least a, a few people that are carrying the torch. We've talked about Andy yeah. Shum, uh, and you said the fat babies. That, he plays with them. He does all the arrangements. I think the band name, though, comes from the guitar player. Also, there's Tuba Skinny. Tuba Skinny from New Orleans. I don't know that the tuba player is skinny. So I, I've asked, <laughs> I'm sure I've asked Erica where the name came from, but I've forgotten what she told right. me. She's their leader and their vocalist, peculiar sounding vocalist, but good looking and odd singing style. Young musicians in their 20s, 30s, and started as a street band in New Orleans. And they play for you at your Bix? They've come up. This will be the third year uh, in a row. Festival, yes. Yeah. because they have all the work they can handle around Mardi Gras time. But we know they're so popular, and, and the crowds have been super. Marla Dixon and her shotgun jazz band, they play revivalist New Orleans jazz like they did in the 40s and 50s. Skinny plays original music from as early as 1900 and into the 20s, the classic sound, and they play more with the authentic sound of the 20s and 30s, and in even some of the back roads, white and black rural mm -hmm. country sounds yeah. of that period. And people just eat it up. You hear it live, any of this old stuff, you hear it live, everyone gets excited. It's amazing. It's not just a dead music anymore. There's a circuit, it's all substrata, no public exploitation. And there are festivals around the country. And some of them are failing because the people are getting older. Young people still are gonna always have a problem melding in with older people and being in the same location. It's like they wanna have their own bag. And the older people don't wanna, don't wanna mix in either. because their ears aren't tuned into it because of the technology explosion. They don't want to listen to any acoustic recordings from the 1920s. That never bothers me. The greatest jazz band ever to record is King Oliver's 1923 Creole jazz band. Louis Armstrong plays second cornet. He is so good. He's like Scottie Pippen to Michael Jordan. But in this case, Armstrong exceeds the capacity or capability of Oliver but he doesn't overshadow him. He knows to play that second cornet part and that it's gonna work if they both move along together and play in harmony. And that discipline is so hard, later on everybody wants to be a virtuoso. And he does that when he's like 23 years old. And he plays on those recordings, recorded in Richmond, recorded in Chicago, recorded in, in New York with Fletcher Henderson. And we think it's his finest work. Thank you. 
people won't listen because it's acoustic. And we say you have to look past that. I think my biggest gripe is that they don't want to hear. Yeah, I, I understand that. I miss the bass. It's hard to hear it in those recordings. But today, they're pulling the bass out. Really? Some of those... Yes, we had a fellow who's a hell of a trombone player from Washington give us a lecture two, three years ago. He had reissued the Oliver Creole Jazz Band recordings and with new technology and pulled out sound from those grooves. And a lot of it is in the rhythm section mm. where, where you lose a whole instrument. And sometimes you lose, in one recording, they lost Johnny Dodd's clarinet. He wasn't positioned properly. You can't, you can't hear it. But they're able to recover it. Yeah, yeah, it's in there now. Wow. Yeah, it's in there now. And we were startled by it. Wow. So we think people have to open up their ears to do more of this. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's happening. But my gripe is that, that I still have good collector friends who, oh, well, is that before 1925 or is that acoustic? Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Damned. <laughs> hey, thank you for your time. Sure, yeah. thank you very much. If you'd like to attend any of Phil Paspahala's walking tours, his Bix Fests, or just say howdy, you can go to BixFest.com. That's B-I-X-F-E-S-T.com. Also, if you're interested in being part of the International Association of Jazz Record Collectors, you can check out their website at IAJRC.org. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Thank you.